Hey, everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we have been talking about stuff and thinking about stuff for almost four years. We started this conversation shortly after my second book came out, Common Sense Pregnancy, and we've been carrying on now, exploring new topics and policies and stories and conversations for four years. Phew! There's been so much to talk about, and no doubt, since pregnancy, parenting, and politics aren't going anywhere anytime soon, there will be a lot more to discuss going forward. Now, as we reach this momentous milestone, I wanted to tell you all how grateful I am for you being part of this conversation. You've added your opinions and perspectives and asked really great questions, and you've added your voices as we've covered a whole slew of topics. You've guided the conversation through your emails and suggestions, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful exchange of ideas, and I'm proud of each and every one of our guests who've spoken up about their areas of expertise in such warm, smart, and compassionate ways. I've loved how scientists and authors and rock stars and doctors and parents like you and me have shared their work and their lives and their families and their personal stories in such meaningful and, you know, casual ways. It's been a really big honor for me to host this podcast, and I have all of you to thank for it. So now that we've produced almost 180 episodes, I'm going to just take a little break until January 2020 so that I can refresh our bank of interviews and work on a couple of other projects. And as we enter into November, I wanted to end this year's podcasts with my deepest gratitude. Thank you to everyone who has listened, shared, and joined us. Thank you to all of our sponsors and advertisers, and to the folks at Parents on Demand Network for their constant support. Seriously, thank you. We still have a lot to talk about. And after we take a real quick break, we're going to talk with a guest who I think is going to resonate with a bunch of us. So quick break, and then we'll get right into it. Okay, we're back and we are ready to chat with this week's guest. Val Jones is a psychotherapist who is interested in clinical and subclinical eating disorders. And we're going to talk about all kinds of food and weight related topics that women have to deal with, especially during pregnancy and the postpartum period. We're also talking about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, being an older mom. So let's get Val on the line. Hey, Val, it's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, Jeannie. I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a bright, crystal clear, sunny day here in Portland, and the fall colors just can't be beat. And I'm going to hear from listeners in Vermont who say, yes, they can, but they really can't. <laughs> it's gorgeous here, and I'm as happy as can be. Where are you? Where do you live? I I am up near the Canadian border, so near uh, Bellingham, Washington. Oh, you're right up the street from me. I was in, yeah, yeah. We've got five hours up the street. But yeah, yeah. Well, it's a long street that Interstate Five corridor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And it it is a beautiful day here too. Yeah, I was just up in Tacoma yesterday visiting daughters. It was a great day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 
yeah, the, the weather has been really nice this week. So yeah. hopefully it holds out for Halloween. Oh, it won't. You know better than that. <laughs> 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 well, well, Val, I introduced you just a little bit before we got you on the phone today to our listeners, but the first question is always this, who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Val Jones and I am an independent clinical social worker here in the state of Washington. Um, during the day, I work for a uh, overseeing the crisis services system in our region. And um, when I do have the time, I like to um, take clients on in my private practice, which I do um, just online and mostly focusing on um, depression and anxiety and um, body image issues. So uh, I work with people that are, are trying to get a better handle on who they are and how they can be in the world in a way that isn't full of suffering and stress. Yeah. I want to um, talk more about that, but I'm also just curious, what it, when you say crisis services, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, uh, we oversee the um, crisis hotline in the region. So if someone is feeling um, suicidal or that they can't really manage um, things or they're worried about a loved one, um, they would call into the crisis line. And my job is to oversee that and make sure that that system is operating smoothly. Do you actually take the calls? No, no, I don't take the calls. I, I audit the people who do. Got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting work. To me, that just seems like a really fascinating line of work. Because you are really meeting people right where they need to be met. They're in, they're in a, a bad way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's our goal to make services, you know, timely, accessible, and um, really something that is useful to that person at that time when they need it the most. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So when you're not doing that what else do you do what else is your life like oh Chris well I have a lot of kids how many <laughs> um five all together now so I, um I have one from a previous marriage from much earlier in life who's currently in college mm-hmm. uh, I have two um that are my stepsons from my husband's previous marriage um, one of whom just started college this year and one's a senior in high school. And then three years ago, we had a, a surprise baby. Mm. <laughs> now I'm um, at the very end of a pregnancy with a, you know, a, a little sister for a surprise baby because I, you know, we felt bad that she was so distant in age from her siblings. <laughs> I get it. It sounds like you and I have similar, <laughs> similar family dynamics. I've got um, kids from, well, my kids are grown now, but, you know, 19 to 35 and just uh-huh. spread them out, spread them out. Yeah. So you're oh, pregnant right now. Yeah. I am. How you feeling? 35 weeks. Woo. Oh, I'm, I'm at that stage of pregnancy where I'm ready to be done. I mean, past the fears of what it might be like with a new baby in the house and just ready to have my own body back and have her have her own separate body. Well, sort of. Are you going to breastfeed? 
Yes. That's yeah. Like, yeah that's You're not getting your body back. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's cute, Val. That's adorable. <laughs> All my hopes and dreams. There they go. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm a dream killer. That's me. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. So you're spending, when you're not working for a living, you're raising kids and running a house and being pregnant and doing what we do at that stage of our lives. Yeah, I get it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's pretty much everything that life is at this point. Oh, I get it. I get it. Plus you, it sounds like you've got just, your house is chock full of teenage boys. Well, um, one of them's in college, and the other one lives with his biological mom. Ah, uh, okay. So, um, yeah, it's it's you know really just the, us and the toddler, and soon the infant. So, All right. So, how far apart are these two kids going to be? Three years. Oh, that's really reasonable. What a reasonable and yeah, sensible way to so. go about it. Yeah, I thought so. Three seemed like a good span. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple that are um, just barely a year and a half apart, and mm-hmm. that's crazy. <laughs> I well, I, I'm going to oh. take that. I'm going to take it back. It was a lot, and um, it turned mm-hmm. out to be fabulous because they had each other and they were they grew up together. You know, I guess it really doesn't right. matter what your child's spacing is. There's going to be, you know, chaos and disorder and pros and cons and benefits no matter what. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, we're, we're getting to the end where honestly, I wasn't sure I even could get pregnant again. So it was just kind of like, if we're going to do this, let's just try, see what happens. If nothing happens, then we'll be satisfied with it. I mean, we already have so many other children, I'm sure <laughs> have something else to invest our love and attention in but um but we got pregnant right away wow (laughs) are you here we go are you um a little bit later in life are you i was 39 when i had my youngest you close oh okay are you in that age bracket yeah i'm uh well i'm 43 all right (laughs) Yeah. So I I really am at that stage where I I have legitimate reasons for not being sure it was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, but this little one I was guess sure it, was it would. Meant to be. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know. It sure was. I know they, you know, they <laughs> they they sow some pretty big seeds of doubt that women of a certain age can conceive, but you know, my mom was 42 when she had me. You're 43. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can happen. I was on assignment in Peru many years ago and um, was at a little tiny hospital visiting with uh, patients there. And one woman that I met with was 53, having her, mm-hmm. like her 13th kid, and um, clearly not through infertility treatments she just got pregnant at 53 and I remember talking to one of the midwives at the at that hospital and she says oh yeah it happens all the time around here no big deal just happens all the time yeah yeah 
53. Right, I get the impression here in the States sometimes that, you know, I'm kind of a unicorn, which I know is not really the case. I, women are, you know, delaying having children um, later and later in this country is my understanding of it. Right. And so, but um, yeah, I still get treated, I think, a little bit with kid gloves. Yeah, yeah. You're a bomb that might go off. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about your work. Tell me how you got into this. How did you know that you wanted to be a therapist? Oh, goodness. I, I, I didn't at first. Um, <laughs> I uh, started my first career wanting to be an academic and um, worked part-time as an adjunct instructor for several years after I had my first master's degree until I realized that, you know, there <laughs> that was a, a really hard field to be in. Um, in terms of finding full-time work, in terms of um, feeling prepared to answer students' questions, and, and mostly in terms of wanting to do something that I knew was going to make a meaningful impact in the world. So it was when I was um, teaching business ethics that I um, realized that I'd taken a wrong turn somewhere along the way and that what I really wanted to do was um, go back and get a, a master's degree in social work so that I could get the skills and the credentials that I needed to be able to do oh, just, uh, just a number of things. Um, social workers work as case managers, therapists, community organizers. Um, we work in administrative capacities like I do with the, the crisis system and, and also as therapists. And so it was through that experience and the internship that I needed to do there that I realized that um, working one-on-one -on -one with people was really, really gratifying in ways that I hadn't expected it would be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Similar to patient care so, as a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. It's, exactly. it's really satisfying. I, I, yeah. 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 So you've specialized, though. It's... it. Um, you know, when we were emailing before this interview, you mentioned uh -huh. that your primary interest is in um, eating disorders and body image. And I'm curious, how, how, why and how? Well, it was a couple of different things coming together all at once. I, I think that's how these things often work. Yeah. Um, this was when I was um, pregnant with my um, last baby. Um, I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And um, through the process of trying to treat that and manage the, the blood sugars, a whole bunch of stuff started coming up for me personally about um, my own relationship with food in my body, how I was handling that, and um, how the way that I was being um encouraged and supported in treating gestational diabetes was opening up new avenues of thinking about that relationship for me personally. Hmm. Simultaneously, professionally, I was working in a job where I was um, coordinating care at a high level for people that needed um, out-of-network services. And in the insurance world, if you need out-of-network services, it's usually some sort of specialized service. Um, and I was getting a lot of cases coming to me at that time for um, high-level eating disorder treatment. So we're talking about not only um, residential care, but also hospital-level 
eating disorder treatment. So while I was going through my own learning about myself and my relationship with food in my body, I was doing this crash course at work to um, direct and approve the um, care of the people that I was um, working for. And um, that was a whole world that I really wasn't aware existed until that point. And it really opened my eyes to the ways that um, we just in general in our society think about food and weight and body image issues and health that could really be, and in many cases is, very damaging to our mental health and to our physical health in certain circumstances. So um, when I went to um, open this, this private practice, I really wanted to work on something that seems to be a need in the area, like, you know, bringing in awareness of, of how um, the culture of, of dieting and weight control negatively impacts people's ability to, you know, do other things that are meaningful in their lives. And this impacts not only people who go on to develop eating disorders, but also people who remain in that is that kind of chronic dieting, constant body dissatisfaction stage, which is a, a vast, enormous number of people. Yeah, <laughs> I think all out. of us. Yeah. Most women can right. relate to that and many, many men. Yeah. Yeah. Especially maybe Definitely. during during pregnancy where you get weighed in public every month, every two weeks, every week towards the end. And even though every medical assistant and nurse in the world is trained to be sensitive to that, it's still a moment. There isn't a person in the world. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take that back. Some people don't care. Um, most people, especially most women, there's a moment on that scale that means something. And, uh, it's uncomfortable. It does. And, you know, for many of us, that number means so much more than, uh, than what it actually is right? Than what it actually represents. Yeah. Um, it means from, a lifetime of not being comfortable with your number. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I'd like to do, I mean, if I had a magic wand and I could change the society, especially when it comes to pregnancy care and postpartum care, I would, you know, really like eliminate all unnecessary weight talk when it yeah. comes to um, to providing care. Because when our bodies are changing in that particular way, those vulnerabilities come to the forefront, like with with a power that they rarely do at any other point in their life. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there is already, there is a connection somewhat to how much weight you gain. And I've worked in this field long enough that I remember, you know, when women were just strongly pushed to only gain 25 pounds. And I mean, it, it was punitive. It was kind of a random number and it laid a lot of guilt on women if they weighed more. And, um, you know, then eventually that standard relaxed a little bit and, but then at that same point, it kind of became super common for women to gain, you know, like 60, 80 pounds during their pregnancies, which 
led to some pretty serious complications like hypertension and gestational diabetes and increased C-sections. So where's the balance? You know, I mean, you got to kind of have to keep an eye on things. Well, I'm going to um, pull back a bit and discuss it more like from a, a theoretical level yeah, and then go into where the balance is. Um, I work from uh, what we call a health at every size perspective. Mm-hmm. And health at every size is a basic philosophy of health care wherein you're not ignoring weight or size, but you are providing care in, in a weight neutral environment where what you're doing is not pushing your patient or your client to focus on weight as the most important um, indicator of health, which often it's not. Um, but instead you're providing evidence-based care based on what that person is individually presenting with. So, um, for instance, when it comes to, to pregnancy and the concern is that the person has developed hypertension or is, um, at high risk of developing hypertension, you would prescribe what you would prescribe to anyone, regardless of their body size in order to manage that condition or avert it. Right. Um, What often happens is that there's a focus from the healthcare provider on minimizing or stabilizing weight gain so that there's no more weight. And that causes a person to focus on things that can, for many of us, become obsessional or become um, really distressing Mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. And that kind of distress doesn't really help avert or avoid uh, getting the hypertension, right? In fact, it might contribute to it more than a couple pounds will. So um, I'm not advocating at all for ignoring it. I'm advocating for treating it neutrally when it comes to providing patient care while watching it as one of many different indicators of how a person's health is. That Okay, sounds good. Um, so where's the balance, you know, like what, what would you recommend? What would you recommend? Uh, Maybe not recommend, but let's talk about the woman who either isn't eating enough or is gaining too much weight. What do you think is the best approach to meet her needs? If it's okay, maybe I could come from a more personal perspective because yeah. I've had three pregnancies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, kind of experienced the the um, gamut of how this might work um, to put it into some sort of like you know um, patient perspective. Yeah. On how this all happens, because I, I you know I'm. I work with people's emotions. I, I treat people's hearts. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mm-hmm. really, you know, uh, want to make recommendations for how to treat their bodies. That's that's other people's areas of expertise. But um, I can say with, with my first pregnancy, I went into that pregnancy at what um, the medical community would have considered uh, an average or normal weight. Um, it was back in the 90s, and so there wasn't as much talk about um, weight as a, a health issue as there is now um, that really kicked in in the 2000s. So I walked into um, my obstetrician's office with a quote-unquote normal weight um, and uh, developed gestational diabetes during the course of the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Now, 
the way that I was able to have a quote unquote normal weight is um, I was really, really restricting the foods I was eating and working my body a lot. No one really asked me how this was possible, but I, I ate about one meal a day and um, I worked as a nurse's aide at the time. And so I was on my feet lifting people, transporting people, uh, doing all this stuff eight hours a day, five days a week. Um, you know, While you were pregnant? Really severely restricted. No, before okay. I got pregnant. Okay, got it. Once I got pregnant, I had enough sense to realize that, you know, you, you can't um, really sustain a pregnancy in a healthy way without any nutrition. So I started eating. And just by virtue of beginning to eat, I began to put on weight. And um, some of my healthcare providers were very concerned about that weight gain, which in the context, if you, if they had asked what was going on, why I was, you know, at such a, uh, the weight that I was at, um, at the time I got pregnant, they would have seen that, you know, what was happening was that my weight was being artificially suppressed by what I was doing to my body. And that by starting to eat during the pregnancy, I was gaining weight that I probably would have had on my body anyway uh, before I had gotten pregnant in the first place. Your body was making up but for lost time. It, exactly. It was going to where it was comfortable operating at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was it was um, concerning to folks and it was concerning um for you know a, a couple of reasons, one uh, because of the gestational diabetes, um, which I remember not really having much trouble managing at that point at all. Um, but it was also concerning because of how rapid it was. It's a taking down a number of pounds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't remember the exact number, but it was it was um quite high. Um, for my pregnancy, I went in at a higher weight. Um, I was older and um, the concern was there immediately that um, that I was unhealthy walking in the door. Just it's, because it's of the quote, number. Unquote, unhealthy. Just because of the number. And you didn't have and, any other um, comorbidities? You didn't have high blood pressure or anything else going on? You were just bigger? No, I was just bigger. So when I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes a second time, uh, my providers at the time, um, and I don't know, I, I, obviously I can't look inside their minds and understand their intentions, but um, I had a midwife that would um, chastise me about what I reported I was eating. Hmm. Now, mind you, I'm a 39-year-old woman. And um, she is um, literally pointing and shaking her finger at me about things that she sees on, on this um, list of foods that um, I was supposed to report to her on. Um, they put me on a calorie-restricted diet in which I was expected to lose weight during the pregnancy. Hmm. And if I um, didn't lose weight and um, get my numbers under control, because I, I think they saw a causal relationship between those two things, they were going to um, refer me out of their practice. Hmm. And so punitive. So, this, so judgmental. Yeah, exactly. So much shame. Exactly. Yeah. 
that's not necessary. <laughs> that's not necessary so, at all. Yeah. Fortunately, I'm not having that experience this time around. And like I said, that experience opened up my eyes to a number of things that I hadn't realized were going on before. Mm-hmm. But um, so, you know, sometimes you go through things because, you know, you, you need that information for later, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, but in one thing oh, that that I I often think about is, you know, we talk about failure to thrive with newborns and children, where um, if they're not getting the things that they need, then they simply don't grow. They it's almost as if they know life is too hard, and they're just not going to take up space in it. And when it comes to women. We are given such a load of grief about becoming larger physically and taking up more space in the world. And, you know, I I just sometimes think about that, that it's okay for babies to get bigger, but not women, not women. We got to stay small. We got to keep it all All confined. It's all got to be within very, very strict guidelines because what might happen if we got bigger? Who knows? You know, I don't think the, the concern is really whether or not we actually get bigger. I think the concern is that we keep our minds and our um, attention completely focused on our bodies. And it prevents us from getting involved in things that, you know, might actually impact somebody else's life. Like what? Give me an example. Like, like, like political participation. If I'm focused so much on keeping myself smaller or making my body shrink, I don't have as much time to focus on bigger issues. Yeah, or energy. I don't have as much time to... Exactly. Yeah. Um, And there does seem to be a correlation between the rise in in diet culture in the United States anyway, historically, and women's rights. Um, The... uh, this is just like side research that I've done that doesn't really amount to anything that I'm doing professionally. But um, but there is a correlation between when women's magazines really started focusing on how to keep your body small and suffrage. Hmm. Tell me more. Tell me more about that. This is not necessarily my area of expertise. Oh, that's okay. It, it, we don't I, have to make it expertise. <laughs> it's just fun to talk about. What's the correlation? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's timing, really, more than anything else. When um, women started to have more of a, a collective voice demanding political participation or the ability to participate in um, federal politics, then you see this you know, correlation in um, the number of diets coming up or the focus on, on um, how to keep yourself slim. Um, and the kind of diets we're talking about are really like swallowing tapeworms and things like that that really make you ill and unable to participate in anything or even think clearly. Yeah. Do, and so um, do you think that was deliberate? Well, I don't think that there was probably anyone orchestrating that on a high level, Mm -hmm. but I do think that it was kind of a cultural backlash to Mm -hmm. a shift in the um, power dynamic. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I I think that that does happen and it doesn't necessarily happen by anyone's clear intention that it happens. And still Um, happens. There were also... (laughs) And still happens. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 
So you mentioned, um, you mentioned the health at every size perspective. And we were also emailing a little bit about Satter's eating competence model and intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, during that, that last pregnancy of mine, when, um, when they were prescribing a um, low-calorie diet for me, I, I knew that something was wrong with that. And so I, um, had, I had heard of health at every size. And I sought out a nutritionist um, that promoted herself as working from that model. And she's the one that really taught me about um, Ellen Satter's eating competence model. That's the the, um, framework that she works within. And later on, as I got more interested, there's just, you know, it appears to be a, a bigger camp of people working with intuitive eating. So I really started out thinking of, of um, things through that eating competence model and then expanded out from there. But um, eating competence, um, Ellen Satter is a, a nutritionist and a social worker who um, was focused primarily on children's nutrition. So um, the uh, using food in the caring, uh, in the nurturing of children. And um, there are a few different ways that that she looks at um, that feeding relationship in her framework. And that can be a feeding relationship between you and a child or between you and yourself um, that um, tries to define what normal eating or natural eating is, like uh, the kind of eating that we might say is instinctive. And for her, I'm trying to remember what all it includes. Um, one is um, the ability to have uh, to tolerate foods that maybe aren't your favorites, knowing that you'll be able to have your favorites later. Like, you know, um, how well are you able to sit at a meal that isn't the tastiest meal you've ever had? Um, some folks really do have a, a hard time with that and will push food away if the food doesn't, you know, meet their standard. Whereas most of us will, you know, I'll eat this now and then I'll have something better when it's available. Right. Um, you know, in other aspects of, of eating that are kind of like that, that show like essentially how relaxed your relationship with food is. And what, she finds at the at the Satter Institute when they study folks that um, are more competent per her definition of eating versus folks that are less competent is that it doesn't matter how much effort and energy it, you, you were putting into um, lining up the nutritional content of your meals. Uh, what matters is that um, if you are a more competent eater, you're going to, over a period of time, average out with a higher, like, you know, nutritional content, like more bang for your buck nutritionally. You mean like someone who's necessarily, oh, go ahead. Like, as opposed to somebody who's just hyper-focused on their nutrition day to day? Are you saying like, if one day yep. you eat hyper-focused, super healthy, you get everything you're supposed to get, and then the next day, eh, maybe not so much. And then the day after that, you do pretty good. It's all going to even out. Well, it's all going to even out, but not necessarily because you have to be hyper-focused on it, but because um, 
really the way that we develop cuisines in every culture around the world. We're putting together nutrients uh, that are going to nourish our bodies. Yeah. This is something that we do through that more natural, easygoing, intuitive relationship with food and how it makes us feel and function over time. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting to look at. And like, you know, in, in our culture right now, there's this kind of push to be hyper focused on on nutritional content. And that's kind of the way that we think about it. Yeah. But there have been healthy people throughout history. <laughs> Right. Had a, a relationship with food that didn't involve counting a single calorie. Right. That and didn't like involve knowing anything about how much sodium was in something. Right. And Michael Pollan writes a lot about that. And I remember hearing him speak and talking about how, um, you know, there are indigenous people that live in Arctic regions that eat only, you know, a really, really limited range of foods because they live in an ice field and they can't get it and they're perfectly healthy and you look mm -hmm. at you know people that live in other parts of the world where they're eating corn and potatoes all carbs all the time and they're doing great you know they're they're thriving on the resources that are available to them and yet here where right. we have oh my god we have food resources to the max extreme People are really struggling with what they're supposed to eat. Yeah. I think we look at it with this very reductionistic approach um, and this very, you know, black and white mindset um, where, you know, we come at food thinking that, you know, we have to count up the numbers of this, that, or something else so that we know what we're getting nutritionally and know if we need to, you know, have something more. Right. Um, and, also, at the same time, dividing foods up into broad categories of good and bad. Mm -hmm. So there's this moralistic overlay on it where, you know, if I eat um, potato chips, that's bad. But if I eat, you know, I, I don't know, some example of something good, then I'm virtuous. I'm a good person now yeah. because I eat this thing. Yeah, yeah. And so... All of those things distance us from our more from our relationship with our bodies. They kind of um, create a, disassociation is a, a strong word, but it, it creates a separateness where we're not really able to tune into what it is that we actually want, what our body is, is craving yeah. at any given time. Well, because there's so much mental stuff going on. Speaking of cravings. <laughs> So I remember with my first baby, I craved, I mean, craved McDonald's filet fish sandwiches. <laughs> it was, there was a period of time there where I couldn't, I didn't eat at McDonald's. I, that wasn't my thing. I was a home cooking kind of girl, but I needed that like you wouldn't believe. And then with my next kid, I needed uh, Hagen dazs bars. <laughs> uh -huh. Needed it. Yeah. Had to have it. I don't remember needing anything with the other pregnancies. I, I think by that time, you know, <laughs> you've got kids in the house and you'll eat what you eat. But with those first two, <laughs> I really, um, I indulged myself and it was lovely. <laughs> Weird things to do. You never huh? know exactly what you might have been getting out of that either, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, I remember... 
with my first one, craving strawberries and roast beef sandwiches. And it wasn't until for years that I realized that I learned that, you know, the vitamin C in the strawberries helps your body absorb the iron (laughs) in the meat. And I was slightly anemic during that pregnancy, but I remember I couldn't get enough of it. Like that's all I wanted to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Our bodies will tell us. Although I think my body was telling me something, mm, I don't know, sort of sarcastic, like, yeah, you need Mickey D's. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was yeah. Relax, let let go a little bit, and yeah. But that just kind of an interesting point about pregnancy because I think that sometimes we think of pregnancy as a time where we can let go of some of our like our food restrictions and our no list that we have the rest of the time. And um, then there's there's still a lot of guilt associated with it for a lot of us, especially if you have something like gestational diabetes, but uh, that's kind of, you know, put on there. Um, but also, you know, um, for those of us who are just, you know, following what our bodies are telling us to eat for the very first time yeah. in a long time. Yeah. yeah. And um, like I said, there's there's some psychic stuff that's that's overlaid onto this and sometimes um that looks like i mean what we've been restricting are all the foods on our no list on our naughty list Mm -hmm. and so when we finally open ourselves up to the possibility of of eating what we want that's all we want yeah or you know like whatever things that we had deemed bad before and um that's not really the place where you're in tune with your body, that's the place where you're convincing your body that there are no foods that are off limits for you. Because yeah. um, one of the, the funny things about our bodies is that when we're restricting, whether that's actual restricting, like we're cutting back calories and our bodies are feeling this as you know a potential famine coming on, or psychological restriction, where we're telling ourselves over and over that this is bad, we can't have this over and over. Um, any kind of restriction leads to a kind of imbalance internally that makes our bodies crave those things. Yeah. Just yeah. want nothing more than to have those things. And I've met so many people who definitely don't qualify for an eating disorder diagnosis. They're definitely not at that threshold but they don't know why at the end of a, a, a period of restriction, say just going on a diet, that they will binge at the end of that and feel totally out of control around food. That's why. Yeah. yeah. Your body thinks it's starving. Yeah. It doesn't care that the reason it's starving is because you're trying to lose some weight. Right. It thinks it's starving and it's trying to keep you alive. Yeah. It's doing its best. It's doing its, it's best. It's doing its job. Yeah. Well, we are <laughs> coming. Do what you walk around in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. We're coming to the end of our our time together, and I want to ask you what else you want women to know. What I want women to know is that you are so much more than a number on a scale. You are so much more than an object to look at, and that if you can open yourself up to that relationship with your physical self, 
with your body in a way that is loving and is full of compassion, I am positive that you will find that there are other things that you want to focus your time and your attention on than making yourself smaller. Yeah. And I would like women to know that if you are in a healthcare dynamic where they're wagging their fingers at you and loading you up with guilt about what you're eating and what you weigh, then you get to say to them, stop it. Not cool. We can talk about this in a different way. And I know it's hard to do that, especially when you're in that moment on the scale and you've just stepped off and somebody says something that, you know, takes you back to deep insecurities and all of that, you get to say, you know what, this doesn't feel good to me. We're going to have to find another way around this. Because remember, listeners, you hire your healthcare providers to provide information and advice. That's it. They're not in charge of you. Quick tip that has worked for me well over the years, if that number bothers you for whatever reason, first, if you're not in a condition where you absolutely need to be weighed, and you can talk to your provider about this, you don't have to be weighed. You can decline having your weight done. And if you are in a position like you're pregnant and they need to watch your weight for a medical reason, you can turn around and um, have a, a blind weight done so that you don't need to know what that number is and it can't affect you emotionally. You can also do the weight yourself. You know, a lot of women feel a little bit more control if they do the weight themselves and then they mm-hmm. can write it down and hand it to the medical assistant. That way it's they're taking ownership of it. You, you've got options. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's do our last three rapid roundup questions, which are always hard ones. What role does feminism play in your life? Oh, my goodness. I, I think that I was a feminist before I knew what that word meant. Yeah. <laughs> um, when it comes to, I, I mean, if it weren't for feminism, I don't think that I would have been guided in this particular direction. Um, in my career, I really, this is a thing that impacts men and uh, trans folks and women all together. But, you know, primarily the whole weight loss stuff is, is directed at, at women. We're, we're the ones that the advertisers target to. We're the ones that um, hear about it the most. We're the ones that are made responsible for the weights of our families. And um, so this is something that I think is, is intrinsically an issue that plays out along gender lines. Um, and feminism offers ways of, of looking at this um, that can be more empowering for, women, for anyone in any body, but especially for those of us in bodies that are marginalized or kind of under the microscope, so to what? speak. What a good answer. You killed it. Okay. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that having babies later in life was so fun. Uh, not the having the babies. That's not any more fun for me than it was earlier in life. But the raising them. Um, I always got the impression that, you know, I would be too tired or this or that or something else. But I think that, you know, having a toddler is, has given me new life. Oh, and I, I wouldn't agree. change that for the world. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So my last question for you then is, 
where are you in the world of motherhood? Uh, I'm all over the place. I'm <laughs> launching one and having one inside me, wishing that, that you know, that's not going to be the case very much longer. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, uh, busy with another one, you know, taking her to preschool. And what I can say about, you know, this long period of time that I've been a mother is that it gets, it doesn't get easier. There's always something new to learn, but you get to where you feel like you can handle it a lot better as time goes on. I know. Maturity rocks. I love it. I love it. It It does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's a good thing. For all my listeners out there who are just a little bit older like us, go get it, girl. You're going to be fine. Yeah. Yep. You will be great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Val, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. You've had some really valuable insights to share with us. And I would love it if after you have this little one of yours, if you'd come back and talk to us again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll just touch Jeannie. That sounds great. Okay Val, go have a good day. Enjoy this sunny day of ours. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said Mama said Mama said Okay, thanks for listening everyone and for hanging out with us for all of these years and episodes. We'll be back in January with brand new stuff, but don't forget to keep your emails and questions coming. Send them to Jean at JeanFaulkner.com. And yes, I'll spell it. J-E-A-N-N-E. Faulkner, F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. You can learn more about me at JeanFaulkner.com. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, Just look for Common Sense Pregnancy. Or look for me, Jean Faulkner. You can find my books everywhere you purchase yours and over on my website. Common Sense Pregnancy is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks, Alex. Bye, everybody. See you next year. That is, unless something really huge comes up that we just have to talk about. Talk to you later. Be days like this. Be days like this.